Hello and welcome to No Holding Back with me, Susan Estrich. Each week I'll have the privilege of talking with some of the biggest names from the worlds of media, politics, and law. Nothing is off the table. I'll be speaking my mind and encouraging my guests to do the same. Today, I'm joined by one of the biggest names in media, politics, and law, somebody who has been at the top of this game for so many years. I don't even begin to know how many titles to give to Lanny Davis, special counsel to the president. He's been on top of every major crisis there is for the last 30 years. Lanny Davis, it is such a pleasure to call you a dear friend, the best crisis manager there is out there, Michael Cohen's lawyer, Bill Clinton's lawyer, everybody's lawyer and best friend, Lanny Davis. Welcome to No Holding Back. Don't hold back. Well, thank you for that introduction. I'm not going to hold back that I learned a lot in politics and life in working for Susan Estrich as the Democratic Convention Manager. I think I'm right in 1988. Is that the right date? That was back then when we were both 12 years old, right, Lanny? (laughs) Exactly. We were both kids. You have had an incredibly busy time of it these last few weeks with Michael Cohen and Donald Trump. Tell me, what are you thinking right now? I mean, you've been at this for a long time. You were with Michael Cohen through the heat of all of this early, his early days with Donald Trump. How are you feeling right now? And what's your take on the indictment and what's going on with Donald Trump? Well, uh, first of all, how I'm feeling, I feel in a, in a way fortunate that at the crossroads of history where accountability and equal justice under the law are the two principles that have meant a great deal to me as a lawyer and as somebody in politics that the indictment of Donald Trump represent a fulfillment of those two principles. Uh, Accountability and equal justice is all that the indictment is about. Uh, Mr. Trump is innocent until proven guilty, as you know, Susan, and an indictment is nothing more than a one-sided accusation. So what uh, Michael Cohen was ready to do when he first approached me in the summer of 2018 was to turn his life around and to speak the truth and take the consequences. And I helped him do that before Elijah Cummings and the House Oversight Committee on national and international television. And he had to own what I described to him as the evil that he had done for 10 years for Donald Trump. He had to own it. He had to apologize for it. He had to express the shame that he told me he felt for it, and then simply explain why he was doing what he was doing, which he explained as finding redemption in telling the truth and taking the consequence, and his family and his country were now more important than Donald Trump, which wasn't the case for 10 years. I was part of that decision, helped him make the decision, helped him do it in a way that I was convinced was authentic. Now we're in a piece of history where there's accountability and equal justice, meaning no person is above the law, even Donald Trump. And I'll discuss the case with you, what I can tell you, But just being in the room for the last six months, watching what the Manhattan DA prosecutors have done, how they built their case, and how they've surrounded the case with not only witnesses, but with documents, emails, text messages, what everybody doesn't know that I know, that this case is a very strong case. We'll see what happens when a jury looks at the facts with the presumption of innocence on Mr. Trump's side. You say it's a very strong case. I've been worried, quite frankly, Lanny, that they were leading with the weakest case of all, that this was the guy who paid off a mistress and, you know, 
hush money, but not abusing the power of the presidency. Tell me why it's a strong case, because frankly, I'm worried that it's a weak case. Well, the easiest answer, which most people are unaware of, is that the Federal District of New York Southern District Prosecutors, which is the most prestigious, without any close second, group of prosecutors in the United States, the Southern District of New York, where is Wall Street and lots of very famous uh, U.S. attorneys come out of that district, made a decision after an ample investigation, and that included a, a, a very comprehensive search warrant on Michael Cohen's home, law office, and everything else. Many, many witnesses in front of a grand jury, and including immunity to several witnesses. And after all of that investigation, they charged Michael Cohen with a felony, And in describing the gravity of his offense, it wasn't about paying hush money to an adult film star. It was about compromising the American democracy and electoral system by a wealthy person paying somebody with information the American people had a right to know to prevent that information from being aired right before an election. They described the crime as a serious strike at our democracy and the underpinnings of our democracy. If you allow wealthy people running for office to buy silence so that the voters don't get to know. They charged Michael Cohn, in case you're not persuaded by the seriousness of that crime, they charged Michael Cohn with a felony, multiple felonies, because he also committed other crimes besides that one, and he went to prison. But in the course of their criminal information, which is an indictment in the form of a prosecutor's statement of evidence, and the sentencing memo that they publicly filed in December 2018, they said the following exact language. Donald Trump directed Michael Cohen to pay this hush money to influence an election, which they described as a serious undermining of our democracy, and they sent Michael Cohen to jail. But they did say that Donald Trump directed him to do this crime. If they said that based upon all the evidence that they gathered, then I will go on to explain to you what facts are available to the Manhattan DA. But they are the same facts that led the federal prosecutors to charge Donald Trump with a crime. They couldn't prosecute Donald Trump because he was an incumbent president. But they charged him in writing, in public, with a crime. And the second thing to mention to you that is very easy to miss, but it was in the same document, is that not only did he commit the felony of buying silence about information that might have affected the election, a serious crime according to the Southern District, not according to me, but he then did something else that when I discovered it and we put it on national television during Michael Cohn's testimony before the House Oversight Committee, I was astonished that it was almost entirely missed. As a sitting president of the United States, he wrote checks from his personal checkbook. He's President Trump now, out of the Oval Office, to Michael Cohn, $35,000 a month, about eight or nine checks, to repay him for the crime the Southern District had already charged him with, which is the crime of preventing the American people, or in uh, this case, uh, the voters, from knowing the information about the adult film star relationship and the hush money that was paid. So he reimbursed as President of the United States for what the Southern District had already described as a crime. That's called fulfilling a criminal conspiracy. And imagine what would have happened if anyone had said to Bill Clinton, why did you write checks to Ms. Lewinsky? I mean, that would have taken the Republican Party off the rails and what, my God, would have happened. A sitting president writing criminal checks, and it was the Southern District that called those checks a reimbursement of a previous crime. Uh, Mr. Trump first called it legal fees, but 
it, he knew, and of course, Rudy Giuliani once in a while made a mistake and told the truth. And Giuliani said, no, they were reimbursed me. <laughs> <laughs> he did on, on, it, we were amazed that he actually corrected, no, they weren't legal fees, which is the way they were booked at the Trump organization, what Mr. Trump said. they were No, they were legal fees. No, Michael Cohn wasn't being paid legal fees. They were reimbursements for a crime. And again, I keep saying to people, don't believe me. I'm just a country lawyer from Washington advocating. For oh, yeah, you're a country the lawyer. The Southern District of New York put this in writing. He was directed to do the crime by uh, a then candidate, Donald Trump, and then the reimbursement for the crime, which is called a criminal conspiracy, by a sitting president from his personal checkbook. So now back to the DA's case, we'll get into what kind of evidence do they have to back up what the Southern District concluded as well. What kind of evidence do they have, Lanning? I don't know how the Southern District reached its conclusions, which are pretty devastating. If I'm Mr. Uh, Trump's lawyer, it's kind of an interesting defense. They're kind of saying, well, he might have been guilty of a federal felony, but he's not guilty of a state crime. Of a state one. They're that, saying that doesn't to, sound to like to a really great public wife. relations message if I'm their crisis manager. Let me get this straight. Trump is guilty of a felony, at, of a federal felony, but he's not guilty of a state felony. Is that good? Or- well, he's just a guy who paid off. That's all it was, and it didn't have any motive to influence an election, and they mentioned the John Edwards case, then let a jury decide whether they believe Donald Trump when he said, I was only worried about Melania. And I waited till the very end after Access Hollywood. I had no uh, thought whatsoever about political motive. You can't believe Michael Cohen. You can't believe anyone. All I was worried about was Melania. That's the argument for the jury to decide. Why should people believe Michael Cohen? I know he's your client. Why should they believe him? So let me not answer your question first and then answer your question. I don't care whether they believe Michael Cohen because the case is all surrounded by documents, documents, documents that prove what the Southern District already concluded without Michael Cohen and charged Donald Trump with as individual one. But let's say that there is a need for somebody else other than Michael Cohen. You're forgetting the second crime that Michael Cohen pled guilty to, even though he had very little to do with it. It was a crime committed by David Pecker and Donald Trump when Trump and Pecker decided to buy out Karen McDougal, a Playboy playmate, and that was a crime. That was a crime between Pecker. Yes, Michael Cohen pled guilty to that crime. The Karen McDougal hush money was paid to influence an election to avoid her going public. That was a deal between Donald Trump and David Pecker. Who is going to be a witness to that crime? The man that was given immunity who testified twice before the grand jury. I'm guessing that David Becker is a second witness. But the final answer to your question about believing Michael Cohen, he's, there are plenty of documents that corroborate what he said. You have a second witness in a second crime. That's all that it takes. And we'll talk about what crime are we talking about. But the real most important thing is what Mark Pomeran said to me when he was the prosecutor under Cy Vance. And he had a case that he wanted to bring to the grand jury. They waited for Mr. Bragg. It was about the financial statements being fraudulent for banks and insurance companies. That's the case that Pomerantz wrote his book about. Well, when uh, the issue of Michael Cohen's credibility came up within the room, as I sat there meeting after meeting after meeting with uh, Mark Pomerantz and the prosecutors at that time, well, what about Michael Cohen's credibility? His answer was, do you know how many members of organized crime, including heads of families that I have convicted as the lead prosecutor where my top witness was a gang murderer. 
Is there any prosecutor that doesn't have to start out by telling the jury, sometimes you don't convict people with saints. You have to use people who are not credible. Or sinners. And you have to decide, exactly. And you have to decide on credibility, knowing that they've lied and cheated and actually murdered people, but they're the witness. And how do you get bad people without getting bad people on the stand? So that's Mark's argument about credibility. My argument is, what has Michael Cohen done? He ended up telling the truth And in case anyone doubts that he told the truth, everything he said in public to Elijah Cummings and to the American people and to the international community watching has been corroborated. The case that Mark Pomerantz put together was corroborated in every which way by Michael Cohen's testimony and documents. Ever since he's appeared before seven congressional committees and every one of them found him credible. He's talked to two grand juries uh, rather, he testified twice to this grand jury and did not take the Fifth Amendment like Donald Trump. I don't know what anyone can do to reestablish, reestablish credibility for somebody who starts out by saying, as I believe he has done consistently, I own and I'm ashamed of what I did for Donald uh, Trump. I committed crimes. I went to prison. I did my time. Lady, let me ask you a question people ask me all the time. Did you have any second thoughts about representing Michael Cohen? No, not after uh, he did what he said he would do. Then I have represented people all my professional career in the world of crisis management, and I have represented them when they have owned their mistakes. Unless those... What if they don't own their mistakes? If they don't, I can't represent them. It's not that I'm making a moral judgment. How can I be affected by somebody who's lied and won't, won't own the lie? Michael Cohen says, I lied, I cheated, I did Donald Trump's dirty deeds. Now I want to turn my life around. And whatever I say, don't believe me. I'm, I've been false statements, convicted of crimes for making false statements. Don't believe me. Look at the documents and check out what I say and see if they're corroborated. So he knows that he has a burden with a jury, given his past record with Donald Trump. The question is whether the jury will believe him. And where does he go from here now? Well, Michael is uh, disbarred. He has served time. He has a real difficulty with his family and all the pain they've been through. And so it's a challenging existence that Michael is living. He's trying to make uh, something of a career on his podcast as a writer. He's published two books, and I hope he will someday have all of his talents utilized. He could be a great crisis manager, as far as I'm concerned. Who who, who would better know how to handle a crisis than Michael? I was going to say. But I can tell you since I've put us both out of business. I've become a friend, as you can tell, more than just a professional relationship. And I feel very badly. He's uh, he and his family have suffered. Not just that he went to prison, he was sent back to prison uh, because he was about to write a book and the federal prosecutors lied about or misstated the truth about why they were sending him back to prison. And on a habeas corpus petition, a former federal prosecutor got him released by a federal judge and the judge said what the government said was the reason they sent him back to prison was not true. And it was about retaliation and trying to get him not to write his book. So Michael has paid the price and whether people believe him or not, You've heard my answer, but I promise you what's in the room of this case is so surrounded by documentation, timelines, telephone calls, emails between other people, but who would corroborate what Michael is saying, that you do not have to believe Michael Cohn to see this as a strong factual case against Donald Trump. Do you think this case will go to trial? Uh, Yes. Now, that is the open question that I myself do not know the answer to, which is what is the law in New York that was violated 
which you're going to have to find, or else it's just a misdemeanor. Certainly it goes to trial on a misdemeanor, but that's not worth taking to trial. No. So, so what is the so law? That there there are several violent. possibilities, but I'm guessing because I don't know the answer from the district attorney. One is a law of income tax fraud in the state of New York. They have put that into their indictment, into their factual statement, and they've inferred that that is one crime that was committed, uh, and that the bookkeeping was motivated to conceal a fraud, and right. the motivation issue would be up to a jury. Well, did they decide to declare these? Uh, forget about taxes, but did they? Were they motivated to? declare this as a legal expense in good faith, or was it done to conceal what, in fact, Trump actually did according to the prosecutors, which is to hush up information that might have hurt his election chances in the context of Access Hollywood, for sure. So that's one possibility, is the tax fraud issue. The other one is there is law in New York that if you break an election law using concealment and fraudulent intent, and you have to prove fraudulent intent, that is a violation of New York state law, even if it's also a violation of federal law. I haven't seen that. I'm a little bit dubious about that theory for the same reason every good lawyer is. But I do know one thing, that when we left in our last uh, meeting, I turned to one of the top prosecutors and I said, I read a New York Times story about a couple of New York state statutes that are involved in this hush money. Do you really have one? And they said, we have more than one. So right now, my mind is open to that. I have the same concerns about whether there will be enough law to support going to a jury. I think with the tax intent fraud, which is a factual question for a jury to decide, this case is going to be tried and go to a jury. But that's my guess. What do you make of the fact, and I know you have to run, but let me ask you one last question. What do you make of the fact that Trump supporters don't seem to care, that he's been indicted, that he faces these charges, that there's this evidence against him, and yet he's just raising money and going forward, and his supporters don't seem to care at all. Michael has the best answer to that. I have my own theories about why anybody would ever support Donald Trump, but Michael has the best answer. And he said, look at me. Why did I do 10 years of being in denial, lying, cheating, uh, scheming people, not paying their bills, people who'd worked for Trump, uh, Michael would say, I'd go into Mr. Trump to pay a bill of a little small subcontractor in Atlantic City who did some plumbing for one of his casinos, and he was owed $80,000, which to him was everything. And Trump would say, pay him 20 cents on a dollar. And I said to Michael the first time he said that to me, oh my God, that is immoral. That is disgusting. Why would Trump do that to a little small businessman, 20 cents on the dollar? And Michael said, because that's Trump. And then I said, then why did you do it, Michael? And that's the answer to your question. His answer is, we were in a cult. We were part of something that we thought was bigger than ourselves and was exciting. And our minds were blanked out on moral compasses. We were there within the circle. And it was, what he often said, almost uh, hypnotic. So when I see Trump rallies and you ask Interviewers ask, well, are you bothered by his inciting an insurrection? Are you bothered by his lying? Are you bothered by his praising Vladimir Putin? Or just recently on uh, Fox uh, praising uh, President Xi? Are you bothered by anything? And what Michael says, the answer is no. I was part of a cult. I know parents who've had kids swept up in cults that we all can think of. And it's the same answer. Why did you do this? I don't know. All I know is I was a believer and I didn't want to question it. So 
I think there's about one-third of the Republican base that are cult-like. There's one-third that are conservatives that will vote for any Republican, even Donald Trump. And there's one-third that are right-to-life, truly appreciating Trump's uh, Supreme Court and reversal of Roe versus Wade. So out of his 40% base, I sort of do my own anecdotal data, uh, Susan, that you might appreciate as unscientific, that it's basically one-third, one-third, one-third isn't going away. Maybe the, the economic conservatives that supported Trump over uh, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, are, are he's losing because he's acting so crazy. So, But right now, his base is somewhere between 30 and 40 percent, and they're never going to change their mind, whether he's convicted and put in jail. If the insurrection and him standing watching television while police officers were being beaten up and killed and not calling in protection, and all he was doing, according to his children, was enjoying the television, then the, the aspect of moral judgments by the Trump supporters, at least among the cult uh, part of the base, is never going to happen. Never going to happen. What made Michael Cohen change his mind? Last question. What made Michael Cohen change? Great question. The cynics would say that Trump stopped paying his legal fees. That's what the cynics say. And the cynics would also say that Trump had a history of turning on people unless they're useful to him. And Michael saw that his usefulness to Trump after the FBI raid was was going down quickly. So there's some of that as well. But when I finally got down to it with Michael one-on-one, and it happened at 2 o'clock in the morning on a baseball trip with my 18-year-old, then 16-year-old son, uh, it was, I need to turn my life around. I have a family and children whose life has been ruined by my working and selling my soul to Donald Trump. I need to take the punishment of doing this because I'm going to be punished by Trump. He will target me. And by the way, he was right about that. Do you notice only one person in the entire Trump organization was prosecuted by the Southern District of New York? And Michael Cohen paid a consequence. So I think he was ready to pay that consequence and take the pain because he couldn't keep living in that cult. He finally hit bottom. Every alcoholic, every drug addict, everybody who's been in that horrible situation knows you know when you hit bottom. Some people, like my old friend from college, George W. Bush, tells the story that when he hit bottom, he found himself on the street drunk, and his wife had locked the door on him. That was Laura Bush. And he tells the story that he was rescued by a born-again spiritual awakening. And since then, as I've always said to him, because we were friends since college, you know, George, you didn't do very badly. Uh, you hit bottom, and then you were elected and reelected governor of Texas and elected and reelected president of the United States. That's not so bad. Michael Cohen hit bottom, bottom. When I talked to him, he was at the bottom, and his family uh, and everything was on the line for him. And he turned his life around. And what he did, if you reread his testimony before Elijah Cummings and the world, He started out by saying, I'm ashamed of myself. I have no excuses. I don't even expect to be believed. I want you to take my words and see whether they're substantiated over a period of time. And that, to me, is the moment that he deserves at least, let's just say you don't have to believe Michael Cohn. Stay doubtful. But just watch how he's been so often corroborated by other people. And in this case, by documents and all the documents that I've mentioned to you that I saw with my own eyes surrounding whatever testimony he will offer at the trial in New York, if and when it occurs. Lanny Davis, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you again. Great question, Susan. Thank you for the tough questions and thank you for inviting me. Anytime. You've been listening to No Holding Back with me, Susan Estrich. Thank you to Lanny Davis for a great conversation. 
Tweet us at No Holding Back FM if you've enjoyed this episode. Please share the link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, noholdingback.fm. This podcast was produced by Podcast Partners. You can find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time on No Holding Back. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you.